This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Hello, I'm, I'm Danielle Walker-Palmore from Friends Provident Foundation. I'm just gonna invite you all to stand up and just give it a shake. Come on, let's get a bit of energy going in this room because I know when you're sitting for a long time, it can be a bit much. So anyway, that was it. Don't leave, <laughs> sit down, we're good. Thank you all for uh, your engagement and presence. Um, as I say, I'm Danielle Walker-Palmore and I'm from Friends Provident Foundation. You met my chair in the last session and my colleague, um, uh, Charlie, will be joining us uh, in the afternoon um, in the audience. And Friends Provident Foundation is a supporter of um, the Worker Tech Fund development. Um, and uh, one of the reasons we are um, interested in this work is that as Friends Provident Foundation, our focus is on how we can have an economy which is fair and sustainable. And um, you can imagine that having worker voice, community voice, and also um, addressing some of the issues around information asymmetries and how they operate in the economy is central to actually restructuring the economy. Um, we tend to think of um, restructuring the economy in terms of what we call the four Ds, which is, okay, this is always tricky to make sure I remember them all, decentralized, democratized, decarbonized, and also, we call it diversified, but we actually mean that in a kind of decolonized. So actually addressing some of the structural um, inequities in our economy. And so you can see how in terms of the last discussion, um, and hopefully what we're going to talk about here and when we talk about skills and training, um, it's vital that to get those four Ds operating. Those are, those are conditions. They are not sufficient, but they are a start toward having a fairer economy. So I will stop chatting on and introduce um, the panel. Um, and we have a fantastic panel. And like Sarah, I'm not going to go through and introduce them all. And I'm sorry that we're missing Theo. Um, um, but um, we have um, Helen Gironi, who's uh, another supporter of the Worker Tech uh, Fund um, and uh, activity. And we'll talk a bit, bit more about that. We've got Claudine Ediami. Um, who's one of the ventures supported by the Worker Tech Trust. Um, uh, Louise Murphy from Resolution Foundation, who's going to be able to give us a big picture, um, and me as well. So I will not talk too much, but I will hand over first, I think, to Louise, who can introduce herself and also give us a good sense of the overview of, of what's going on in, in skills and training. Perfect. Morning, everyone. Um, yeah, I'll just speak for, I guess, two or three minutes to introduce myself and set the scene. And then I'm sure as the uh, panel discussion goes on, we can delve into some things in a, in a little bit more detail. Um, so I'm an economist at the Resolution Foundation, focusing kind of broadly on labour market employment and also um, skills and, and education. And I thought I'd kind of briefly outline the three lenses through which we've really been thinking about education and and training over the last couple of years. As Gavin said, we've been doing this big piece of work looking at how we can transform the British economy. And we've been clear throughout that, that education and training is a, a vital part of that. 
So the first thing that I think is important is really thinking about how we can reduce inequality in the UK um, and how we can you know, make it possible that there's good jobs available up and down the country to, to, to people from all backgrounds. And we really need to think about how we can improve education and training to, to do that. For example, we know that there's been a decline in the number of apprenticeship starts among young people. Um, that's been a pretty constant trend over the, the past, past, um, past decade or so. And so we need to think about how we can you know, Im improve that so that young people that you know, maybe don't, uh, you know, don't have a sort of educational bent that don't um, you know, maybe do go that kind of traditional path from GCSE to A-level to, to university can, can get the skills and training they need to, to find a good career. And then the second lens through which we've been thinking about this is really in terms of growth. I mean, that's something that we're hearing constantly from politicians of all backgrounds, how we can, you know, boost growth, improve the, the British economy. And again, I think it's, it's hard to think about that without thinking about skills and training. You know, we obviously need to invest in transport and things like that, but we also need to make sure that workers really can, can do these high growth uh, jobs. Um, and what we found is if we want to um, boost the parts of the, the economy that the UK does well on, things like life sciences, creative industries, these, these jobs, these careers really require people to have um, yeah, high levels of, of education and training. And then finally, the, the third lens through which we've been thinking about this is really in terms of health. Um, so again, we're hearing a lot at the moment about you know, the growing number of people that are out of the labour market due to to ill health or, or, or disability. And we've been thinking particularly about how we can improve the, um, the education and employment prospects of young people who have health conditions. And again, it's become really clear that skills and training is a, a big part of that. A shocking four in five of the young people who aren't working due to ill health don't have a qualification above GCSE level. So I think it's really impossible to think about how we can, you know, get Britain working, get people um, into the labour force without thinking about how to make it easier for people to, to get the skills and training that they need. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, can I hand over to Claudine? Sorry, this is unrehearsed. So we're there. it's a surprise when I come people. So um, can I hand over to Claudine to talk a bit about Early Bird? Yeah, sure. Um, good morning, everyone. I am the founder and CEO of Earlybird. Um, Earlybird builds technology for employment support organizations, so organizations that are um, delivering hyper-personalized programs to support people into work or training. Um, we build the technology that helps them to capture a much uh, deeper set of insights and understanding on the participants that they engage with um, through simulated voice-based conversations. Um, for us, really what, why we exist is to support people to thrive in employment. Um, and we're at the very early stages of the journey of um, them getting into training and, and skills because they're at the point of, of the journey where they're not really sure uh, maybe kind of the, the pathway that they want to take. They have a number of barriers that are preventing them from accessing work or training, um, which can extend from the uh, typical kind of employability challenges around, you know, not having the right CV or not having the right qualifications, as has been mentioned, right the way through to having challenges um, on a more personal level that can affect their ability to, to, to work or, or learn 
Um, so those could include things like challenges with their housing, uh, challenges with mental health, personal relationships, and so on. And so our technology um, supports those organizations that are um, helping those people to overcome those barriers by enriching their understanding of those so they can improve the quality of the support they deliver. That was wonderfully succinct. Thank you very much. We'll come back and hear a bit more about it as well. Um, Helen, can I get an input from your perspective? Absolutely. Hi, my name's Helen Gironi, and I'm Director of Ventures at UFI Ventures. Um, and we basically uh, support or we invest in uh, technology businesses that are helping uh, adults, so post-16 years, uh, people upskill and find good quality work. Um, We've invested in uh, 16 ventures so far, um, offering uh, a very a diverse range, really, of um, innovation um, in this area. And um, I guess my uh, take on providing greater access to skills is that technology is a, a great enabler. There, is, there are a lot of uh, great innovative businesses in this space. Um, so I think there, there has been we've got the technology to provide greater access or greater access to skills, um, but it is also a very fragmented system. And I think uh, that means that it's a, a bit of a sort of postcode lottery, essentially, actually somebody chancing upon technology that is suitable for them um, and um, that they're, you know, supported uh, to realize that that's the right uh, thing for them at that point in their in their journey. Um, so I think a big part of uh, enabling access to this is uh, more intentionality, uh, essentially from uh, FE colleges, from, from schools, from employers to uh, show, showcase and, and show what um, available technology is out there for people um, and to uh, provide people with, with better information really about what's available. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Um, and now we're going to have a little bit more of a panel discussion. Um, and I wanted to go back, picking up on the theme that came up in um, the introductory sessions, as well as um, the last panel. Really, what is the role of policy in this? Because I think, Louise, you outlined your three lenses, but in some ways, what, what's the policy role, in addition to obviously thinking about the social investment tech um, venture type level, but what's, what's the policy solution? Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely good to think not just about what the, the problems are, but also what we can, what we can do about it. Um, I mean, I think the first thing is just reflecting or thinking um, uh, properly about, you know, what's going well and what, what needs improvement. I mean, I think too much of the debate is currently around university, whether we've got too many graduates, what sort of courses they're doing. Actually, when we look at kind of the, the skills, demand and supply, we, we're doing about right when it comes to, you know, the, the number of people going to, to university. But where we're doing less well and where there's definitely need for, for policy is both on making it easier for young people who um, are less academic to get sort of so-called sub-degree level qualifications, those at level four, level five, what sort of is traditionally seen as HNDs and, and HNCs. The UK does pretty bad compared to most international countries um, in, in providing those qualifications. And so there's certainly a role for policy, both in just 
practically, you know, making it easier for, for colleges and universities to, to provide those courses, to work with employers so that they're given the recognition that they deserve so that, you know, practically a, a, you know, a young person feels like that is a good decision for them to, to do one of those courses. I mean, I think at the moment it's not surprising that few young people take that trajectory when, you know, most people haven't even heard of these courses. They don't know anyone that's done them. So, you know, how can you convince someone that that's a, a good thing to do? And then I think secondly, the other real area where, you know, policy could be doing more is to try and, um, you know, reverse this trend we've seen, which is a decline in in-work training. Um, so consistently we've seen um, fewer workers receive training. And what's particularly concerning is it's the, the lowest educated workers who receive the least training. Um, so they're sort of doubly disadvantaged. And also what we've seen is that the decline um, in recent decades has been most pronounced among younger people. Um, you know, we have some policy in this area, notably the, the apprenticeship levy, which is, I guess, increasingly being used for um, sort of in-work training for existing employees rather than being seen as something to, to, to upskill young people. Um, but I don't think we should see the apprenticeship levy as the only vehicle for providing in-work training. There really should be um, more um, or an easier way for employers to kind of give shorter and kind of more gradual training. So we've for example, proposed some trialing of things like human capital tax credits, um, kind of slightly similar to, to what happened, what currently happens um, for research and, and development, but certainly thinking more about what we can do to incentivize employers to, to upskill their, their workers is um, should be seen as a priority, I think. It's brilliant. It's really helpful. And then looking at it from the other end of the, the, the sort of telescope or the other, of other lens, you know, what is the role of technology? I mean, Sherry gave us a little bit of a sense of how technology can support um, training. But Helen, from what trends have you seen in terms of um, some of the ventures, other ventures you've supported um, in terms of the role of technology in, in ensuring low paid workers in particular can get access to skilling and upskilling and reskilling? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think there are a number of uh, ventures in our portfolio that are doing really interesting work here in, in terms of uh, ensuring access. So for example, uh, Capstock, one of our portfolio companies, it, it's essentially, it's a, a boot camp um, in cybersecurity. Um, and their, uh, their intervention, their learning is fully funded. So they provide through a partner affordable funding upfront for the upskilling. Um, and essentially what they're seeing is that the, the graduates post-learning go on to uh, something like double or th there's, there's a significant uplift. There's a, um, you know, tens of thousands of pounds in terms of their salary uplift post-completion so that um, the learning is affordable as long as they can uh, get access to funds pre-learning. Um, so that's a, that's a really interesting way of making sure that it works for both the learner and the uh, provider of the uh, the intervention as well. Um, I think also one of our, um, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, portfolio companies uh, called Assemble U is uh, providing access to learning for mobile uh, first employees. So people who aren't sat at, at desks and in fact 80% of the global workforce doesn't use a computer uh, in their working day. And so what they're doing is they're providing 
bite-sized learning uh, to people through their mobile phones, which means that they can access, you know, 10 minutes of, of learning in the car on the way to work or when they're walking their dog. Um, and they're seeing that this is a really popular way for um, employees who are uh, not, not able to access a computer uh, to learn. And it, and it really is, the engagement rate is very high uh, and completion rates are very high. So I think, you know, really um, making, personalizing the learning to, to the individual is really important um, and making sure that the, it is fully funded upfront and that there's this funding available. Thank you. And, and turning to you, Claudine, what are the biggest challenges that startups have in terms of making an impact in this kind of fragmented but also huge area? I mean, what are the biggest challenges that you've faced setting up a venture in, in this space? Um, good question. So um, I think the one of the key challenges, and I think it's um, quite common for a number of different startups, is funding and access to <laughs> Funnily enough, um, so thankfully, Resolution Ventures have backed us and supporting us to do that. But I think that is one of the, the, the big challenges. Um, and then I think it's thinking about what your business model looks like and how you navigate the space. So Helen was talking about fully funded programs and things like that, where you typically are looking at um, government schemes um, that are funding these, these, these programs. And then you're kind of having to sit within a particular box for that and thinking about how you can um, penetrate those contracts where some, some of them it's not as easy to um, integrate tech into some of those as well. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges that we've, that we've seen and come across. Um, and then um, another point that Helen was talking about was seeing increased engagement with some of the technology that exists. And I think that's really, really critical. Um, so we've seen that there's been an increase in um, different types of forms of learning that have been fully funded. So, for example, um, boot camps from the DfE. Um, but we've had reports from loads of providers where the, the engagement levels and dropout rates are really, really high on those types of programs. Um, and so it's really looking at how you can build technology that is really, really user-centric and, and user-first um, and looking at how um, the engagement rates of, of, the, of the learners are, are high um, to combat some of these challenges. Um, I think the other thing for us is really thinking about what is, what is the reason for the challenges that exist today. Um, and for us, a lot of it is around, one, awareness. So a lot of the people that we come across, they aren't even aware that some of the opportunities to learn um, exist. Um, both unemployed and people kind of in work as well. Um, particularly for the people who are in work, there is huge challenges around time. So having um, technology that is really accessible um, is, is really important um, because you have people that have all sorts of other commitments, working long shifts in their jobs and things like that, where they just don't have time to, to commit to traditional courses. Um, and then again, funding. So having those opportunities that are, are fully funded. So I think as a, as a founder, it's kind of looking at what the landscape look, looks, looks like, what the needs are of those learners and, and those individuals who need to access skills and training and how you can marry the two and insert yourself in, into that landscape. That's really helpful. I suppose from a per, where I sit, I sit in a kind of different, not necessarily in this space. So it sounds like we've got both fragmentation and um, compartmentalization. So you get trapped in boxes, like you have to operate in that box, regardless of whether that makes most sense to the problem you're trying to, to solve. Um, and so one of my questions really to all of you is how can this system be more dynamic and responsive to the needs as they develop? 
Um, so I think I take Andrew's point, you know, the future of work is now. So how do we um, help workers respond to that? Um, but also, yeah, just a feel for how, how do we um, deal, how do we create a dynamism in how we provide things um, for, or how we create opportunities? I don't know if you have a, a sense of that, Helen. I think it's quite difficult to do on a sort of company by company basis because each company has its own, uh, you know, um, uh, things that are important to them. And I think also it, it's quite difficult for companies or it's rare. I, I've seen it rarely that a company <clears throat> will put aside a, a, a substantial amount of resource to, to focus on this area. Um, for me, the obvious solution, if it's affordable, is for it to um, happen through, for example, the Further Education Network or in schools at the beginning of people's careers. Um, but again, that's a resource issue. You know, who, who uh, pays for that? That's, uh, you know, that's a, a big issue. Perhaps it's, you know, employer organizations grouping together. There's a, there is a lack of information flow, it seems, between further education colleges and schools and employers um, in terms of sort of understanding what the local challenges are, what the local needs of employers are, and, and the, the sort of upskilling and learning that's happening on a local basis. So I think definitely better communication um, and, you know, government funding would be, would be great. <laughs> I think I'd in particular like to see um, the government funding like test and learn opportunities, whether they're involved or not, but really kind of putting money into um, allowing partners to test and learn technology in, in new environments um, and partner up with different types of organisations. I think that would be really cool. And there has been some examples of that in the past in terms of inclusive economy partnership that happened a few years ago and things like that, but I'd love to see more of that. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Because I'm not sure everyone will know how that works. How do test and learn opportunities work? Well, they don't do it much. <laughs> um, but I think, so with the Inclusive Economy Partnership, um, to, to my understanding, I think that's completed now, but we were um, a part of that programme um, where they delivered a programme called Boost, um, which combined uh, government, civil society and um, startup uh, founders. And the idea was to really kind of bring them on a journey to explore partnerships, um, funding education, communication between um, those parties. Um, so we use that programme to connect with um, government bodies, with potential customers, um, with other founders, um, and also with investors. So it was really kind of bringing that space together. And I think that kind of model um, could exist where you're kind of funding opportunities for um, particular organizations to, for example, collaborate with a further education college and see what they can kind of come up with or partner with an employer and see what they can come up with. I think that would kind of help inspire and motivate more conversation. It's really helpful. And, and Louise, I don't know if in the research, issues around dynamism and how we get some inject some energy into this process yeah i mean definitely echo what's been said before i mean i think there's some movement in this space so for example we are um seeing you know a bit of a commitment to changing the, the sort of the way that loans work to make it easier for people to kind of chunk up their learning do modules rather than having to commit to doing you know a, a full kind of year or multi-year long course and i think you know as we've heard just for many people particularly low-paid workers who might be juggling shift work or juggling work with 
other commitments, you know, that just isn't isn't a viable opportunity. So I do think that is, um, you know, a necessary part of what needs to change. And I do think hopefully technology would would make that easier for people to to fit training and education into everything else that's that's going on in their life. Um, but I do think maybe what's what's still missing or that we need to think about a bit more is just really thinking about skills and education in a strategic way. So not just thinking about where we are now, but thinking where will we be or where do we want to be in, say, 10 years time? So that includes just thinking about, you know, how we want to grow the economy. How can we make sure that the skills and training opportunities are there for, for people to go into these kind of high growth sectors like, um, you know, like life sciences or like some of the new technologies that the UK is pretty competitive in? But also thinking, for example, about the transition to, to net zero um, and what that might mean for the, the jobs that we're going to be doing and making sure that, you know, for example, some of the, the things that are topical now, you know, do we have enough apprenticeships or training courses for heat pump engineers or electric vehicle mechanics? You know, these should really have been things that we were thinking about 10, 15 years ago rather than, than now. And so I guess as we now think about AI and things like that, we should be trying to, to get ahead of the game. Thank you. Um, a question that I have, and it's something that actually is a holdover from work that Friends Provident used to do a lot more of, which was relating to financial inclusion. And um, one of the things we noticed in this area was that people, um, when talking about financial inclusion, when you talk to corporates quite often about financial inclusion, they were very keen to talk about financial capability which was actually about the skills that people had to manage and navigate the financial system and financial products. Mm. Um, and what began to be sort of echoing in our, in our collective um, organizational mind was actually these were very much solutions about fixing the people, not fixing the system. And just really wondering if people have like reflections on, you know, are there collective solutions here which actually start to redress some of the the challenges around power and how that gets held, but also reflecting some of the points that were made in the previous panel about really employers not knowing how to fix stuff. Like they can see there's a problem, but they actually don't have solutions to hand. And I just really wanted to get any reflections from the panel before we allow you to have your, your break, proper break, we can actually leave the room, um, in, to, to these sort of collective solutions, solutions which are about trying to speak and redress some of the power imbalances in the system. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Claudine, from a venture perspective. Um, in terms of the, are you talking about in terms of the end users? Yeah. Connecting them to each other or? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, mm. off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, that's fair, that's fair. I don't know, Helen, you've come across anything in your... Well, not, not specifically from a, not a, not a venture, but I think there is, um, to Louise's point about thinking strategically, I think there's a part that um, as, a, as, a, as a country, um, we all have to play in helping uh, people who are outside of the workforce think strategically about what uh, skills are, are sought after, for example, green skills. Uh, skills in the construction uh, industry, for example, there are pockets of, there are areas in the economy where if they got the right training at the right time, it would be much easier for them to find really good quality work. Um, 
And I think that information is getting through to companies that are in the, the right position to understand how it works. But there is a there's a problem in, you know, basically people, you and I, understanding where the pockets of demand are. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know about anybody else on the panel, but when I was thinking about my career, I wasn't thinking strategically. And I think that can make a massive difference to somebody's start in, in their career and, and how the initial years go and, and progress from there. <coughs> Any thoughts? I don't think it, I think that, that sums it up pretty well. But um, I mean, I think just the way that, that we think about this is really, um, you know, in terms of, you know, better access to, to skills and training, allowing people to find, you know, good jobs that have dignity that they feel that they feel proud of. Um, and I mean, I think just there's a, um, you know, I guess a huge prize to be had. What we can see is, you know, at every level, just kind of getting, you know, even going from, you know, level two, very low level of qualifications up to something like an A-level equivalent results in people, you know, having higher wages. Um, so I think we shouldn't forget just sort of how transformative this can be and what that can mean for, for low paid workers, both in terms of, you know, money in their pocket, but also just a, yeah, a, a job or a career that they feel proud of. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I want you to hold questions and points you want to make about skills and training, um, because I believe the next session is um, after the break, the real break, I keep promising you, um, you actually get to go into breakout rooms and have kind of discussions about that and make connections. Um, but I'd like to invite you to thank the panel um, uh, in the, the usual way, and then I'll hand over to Louise or Emma. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.